Well, imagine with me that your car is having problems. And sadly, some of you don't have to imagine that, right? You have an ongoing issue with your car. You're not sure what's going on, but thankfully you have a trustworthy mechanic. And so you take it to the mechanic and they do their assessment and they have tough news. It's going to be a significant repair. You don't have to get this repair. Your car is still drivable, but if you don't get it, you face or risk a life-threatening accident at any time. So the car is fixable at a cost. Though the initial assessment is bad news, hard news, it contains potentially life-saving news if we act on it. Or imagine you get called into a special meeting by your supervisor at work, and they share with you some concerns about your job performance, but your supervisor cares about you. And they've been supportive over the years, and they still believe in you. And they offer a pathway forward to give you training that will help you overcome your deficiencies. So, though the initial part of the meeting is difficult, the pathway forward is a potentially job-saving pathway. Or, say you haven't been feeling right for a while and you go to your doctor and the doctor orders some tests and the doctor calls you to reveal the results and they share difficult news, but they also talk about a pathway forward with a good likelihood of recovery. So though the diagnosis is difficult news, it can lead to a potentially life-saving treatment. So notice the pattern. Difficult news is delivered by a supportive messenger that leads to a pathway forward. And the passage that we're looking at today falls into this pattern. It asks questions and contains news that might be difficult at first for us to hear, but it comes from a place of love and concern. And if we heed its message, it has the potential to be life-saving or life-altering and faith-strengthening. This passage concerns the genuineness of our faith. How can we know that our faith in Christ is genuine or real? And as we walk through this passage, we're going to discover the answer to this question, but we'll also look at three counterfeit faiths that look like genuine faith in Christ from the outside, but are not. And the tough part of this message will be if we find ourselves practicing a counterfeit faith. Or we might find ourselves drifting towards such a faith. Yet James speaks from a heart of concern and love. And if we heed his message, it can redirect us if need be, or encourage us with evidence of the genuine faith that we have in Christ. And I have been praying that God, by his word and by his spirit, will speak to our souls and lead us on good pathways to live out genuine faith in him. So, I want to invite you to turn to the passage today in, in James. It's James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, and it's on page 856 in the Bibles that we have for you here, if you want to follow along there. James 2, verses 14 to 26, this passage is famous 
for one reason that we'll get to later on in this message, but it specifically talks about genuine faith. So James 2 verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So this section begins with James asking a couple of questions. What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And these questions are not surprising in light of what James has already said in his letter. Remember James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So we can't just hear God's word, we have to act on it. Or James 1, verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So he's saying, if a, if a person claims to be religious but takes no concern or shows no concern for the way that they talk and the things that come out of their mouths, their religion is worthless. Or perhaps more famously, James 1, 27, the verse on orphans and widows, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So, true religion involves showing concern for orphans and widows in their affliction, and it involves showing concern for keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. So these questions in chapter 2, verse 14, are not a surprise in light of what James has written before. And he indirectly answers the main question of this message today in verse 14. The question is, how can we know if we have genuine faith? And the answer is, genuine faith is joined by good works. And when James uses the term works, he's talking about two types of works. One is the work 
of spiritual and character growth like bridling one's tongue or showing concern to not be stained by the world. And the other use of the word works, James uses to describe works of mercy and love towards others. So it includes visiting orphans and widows, not showing favoritism based on external appearance as we saw last week. And so genuine faith in Christ shows itself in personal spiritual growth and works that serve others. And with this definition in mind, let's read verse 14 again. So listen to verse 14 with this definition in mind. What good is it if someone says he has faith but has no concern for growing in Christian character and does no acts of mercy or love for others? Notice, James does not say in verse 14 that the person has faith, a true faith. He writes, if someone says he has faith. So this person claims to have faith in Christ. They claim to be a Christian, but their faith does not show itself in good works. And then James asks the question, can that faith save him? Does this person have saving faith? Will they be saved in the end? So this is not some minor point of theology. This is a question of eternal destiny. And then James gives an example in verses 15 and 16. A brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. And the person who says they have faith sees this person in need. And they go up to them and they say to them, go in peace. Be warmed and filled. And then they walk away. They don't give them clothes to warm themselves. They don't give them food to fill themselves. And James concludes this is non-genuine faith. He says it at the end of verse 16. What good is that? Verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So this is the first example of non-genuine faith in Christ or a counterfeit faith in Christ. Number one, mere emotion that never goes beyond religious expression. And by this, I'm not saying emotions are bad. We need emotions. We need to pay attention to our emotions. They help us identify what's going on in our minds and our souls. They can move us to act like Christ, but this is mere emotion that does not go beyond religious expression or sentimental words. Oh, be warmed and filled. Go in peace. And James charges that a person who only expresses sentimental religious phrases to people in need might have a faith problem. James claims authentic faith leads to acts of mercy. It is inconsistent for followers of Christ to have no heart for people in need. Christ saw and helped people in need. And we're called to imitate Christ. And we sometimes fail and we sometimes sinfully ignore the needs of others. Yet a person with genuine faith will be bothered by this. They will confess this and they will ask Christ to grow in their heart a deeper heart love for others and a desire and ability to act on that heart. 
but mere emotion that never moves beyond a five-second expression of religious comfort points to a faith problem. Now, how much might such a non-genuine faith develop? Well, say a person goes to a Christian summer camp when they're a tween or a teenager, and they have a great time there, and they see people their age who are on fire for the Lord, and they find it very inspiring. And then one night at campfire, there's great singing and testimonies and a message, and the call is made to give one's life to Christ. And in that moment, they're very emotional, and they pray a prayer to receive Christ. And the camp ends, and they go back into their world. They go back to school. They may join a church. They may go occasionally. They may have already been going to church. They may even say, I'm a Christian. But their friends, their deep friends at school, scorn Christ or treat him as irrelevant. And camp was then. And this is now. And by Christmas, it's kind of like they never went to camp. They don't read their Bible. They don't pray. They may still go to church. They may still call themselves Christians. But they are a different person Sunday morning compared to the rest of the week. And when they see a needy person, they may have short moments of compassion and feeling, and they might sigh and say something like, oh, 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 that's so, that's so sad. And then they go on with their lives. And this just continues through the years and maybe they get married and maybe they have kids and maybe they go to church, but that's about it. And if someone asks them, are you a Christian? Yes, of course I'm a Christian. I prayed that prayer 25 years ago back at camp. Now, we can certainly pray to receive Christ at camp with a genuine faith that leads to life change and maybe that's the testimony of some of you. But if we claim to have faith in Christ based only on a prayer we prayed 25, 30, 35 years ago and our lives don't show any evidence of good works now, any concern for growing in Christ now, it raises questions about our faith. And that is what James is trying to awaken here, I believe. He's concerned for people who think they have a genuine faith, but may not. He's concerned for their salvation. Can that faith save him? And he concludes in verse 17, faith without works is dead. And then he continues in verses 18 and 19 where we discover a second type of non-genuine faith. Verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. You have faith, I have works. So James introduces an imaginary speaker. But what does this mean? You have faith, I have works. How is that counterpoint to what James is saying? And I agree with those who interpret this to mean something like this. Okay, so James, you're saying that faith without works is dead, but actually, some people have faith, and some people have works. And it's either or. Both are good, 
But it's either or. You don't need both. Well, James responds in the second half of verse 18 by saying, Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And then he gives an assessment of so-called faith without works. Verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. So the person that is arguing for a faith that does not need works says, I believe in the one true God. I believe in the triune God. I'm not a pagan. I believe in God. And James responds, you do well or good. But we're not sure if it's a completely genuine or generous compliment. He might be saying, well, that's a good start. Or he might be saying something more like, good for you. But the second half of verse 19 devastates the claim that you can have genuine faith without works. Even demons believe and shudder. You say, I believe in God, therefore I have true faith, even though I don't have works. Really? So do demons. They certainly don't do good works in God's eyes. Would we say demons have genuine faith in Christ? The answer, of course, is no. So what does that say about people who claim to have faith in Christ but only say, I believe in God, and that's it? That's all I need? So this is the second example of non-genuine faith in Christ. Number two is mental affirmation of belief in God that does not lead to life change or is not accompanied by life change. And maybe you know people who say, oh, I believe in God, but don't walk with God. Or if someone asks them, are you a Christian? They may respond, yes, I believe in God. And they may be a Christian. If you dig a little deeper, you may discover, yeah, but, and, and they also have trusted their life to Christ, and they also are concerned about growing in their faith, and they also need to, you know, get back on the, on the, on the pathway, but they, they have that true faith there. They are concerned about others. Or they may think that being a Christian is all about mentally affirming in your mind belief in God, and that's it. And James says, no. Demons believe in God, and they're not Christians. And, and think about how this kind of so-called faith can play out in churches, where churches become so concerned about right thinking, and right thinking is critical. You know that that's what, what we're all about here. We are word-focused, and we want the Lord to speak to us. But if we only focus on right thinking and not on right living, there's something wrong. If a group of Christians can together, oh yeah, we agree on this confession of faith, but we hate each other. There's something seriously wrong. So that's counterfeit faith number two. Mental affirmation of belief in God that does not lead to a changed life. And then there's one more type of non-genuine faith I need to talk about. It's not in this passage, but it refers to this passage. 
or it's drawn into this passage, and this is what I was talking about earlier, about why this passage is somewhat famous. So the third type of non-genuine faith is, number three, doing good works, thinking we earn salvation with God. Doing good works to earn salvation or favor with God. And this comes from the Apostle Paul. And he writes, for example, in Galatians 2, 15 and 16, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So Paul speaks against a type of faith that does not depend on faith, but works. It depends on good works to earn God's acceptance. And most religions in the world function this way. They say, if you do these good works, God will accept you, or the higher power will accept you. Or if you do more good works than bad works, then God will accept you. Or you'll be able to escape the reincarnation cycle. But Christianity says you are saved only by faith in Christ. We can't do anything to earn our salvation. We don't receive such salvation by doing works of the law. We receive it solely by faith in Christ. But do you see the problem? especially when we look at verse 21 back in James 2. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And Paul has just written, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith alone. So there are two possibilities. One is, Paul and James contradict each other. And we have a major contradiction about faith right in the Bible. That's one op option. The other option is that Paul and James are talking about different properties or aspects of faith and using the same words to describe them. Just like, for example, we use the word rest. I'm going to go for a little rest. You know what that means. Or they have been laid to rest in a cemetery. Same word, different meaning. So I'm going to quote professor, a professor named Joel Gregory who has a nice summary of this. He writes... Luther famously called James the epistle of straw or emptiness because of a basic misunderstanding of the two ways the word justified may be used and the two ways works may be used. When Paul uses the word works, he means conforming to the Jewish law in order to be saved by our own merits. But when James uses the word works, he indicates deeds of caring for others that reveal saving faith or Deeds that show a desire to go deeper in honoring God. 
When Paul uses the word justified, he refers to our belief in the substitutionary death of Christ by which we're pronounced not guilty in the presence of God. But when James uses the word justified, he uses it in the sense of being validated, shown to be righteous. So in that sense, Abraham was shown to be righteous when he offered Isaac. Rahab was shown to be righteous when she hid the spies. So when James says all this stuff about Abraham, he's not saying that he was initially saved by his works. He's saying that his works showed that he was saved and would be saved at the last judgment. And in a similar, similar way, Rahab's works of mercy showed that she was saved and pointed to her future salvation on Judgment Day. So we need both Paul and James. We need Paul to free us from the burden of thinking that we've got to do enough good works to earn God's favor. We need James to remind us that true salvation leads to good works. And one author put it like this, we are saved by faith without works, but saving faith works or produces works. And James has already given multiple examples of good works. Last week we learned about not showing favoritism based on external appearance, and we would be looking about not boasting about tomorrow, and we'll be learning about humbling ourselves and being patient in suffering as we go forward in this letter. But today, we need to finish off our appointment with James. Remember, you start, started with the mechanic, the supervisor, the doctor who had hard news, but they cared about us and they have a pathway forward. Well, James has this news for us today, but he cares about us. And now, how are we going to go forward? And today, maybe God has revealed that your faith has settled into sentimentality, just mere emotion, and you come to church to get moved emotionally a little bit every week, and that's it. If the worship service moves me emotionally, I'm good. And nothing else during the week with respect to God. Or you see a person in need and you kind of feel something for a little bit, but then you're, you're, you kind of just get on with your life. And, and if, if that's you, maybe God's revealing to you today, you need to confess that and confess, I've settled into that, Lord. And, and I, need to, I need to go deeper again and act on what you're moving me to do in my heart. And I need your power and strength for that. Or maybe... God has revealed to you today that you are coasting in your faith based on your belief statement in God 25 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 years ago. Oh, well, you know, I prayed that back then. That's all I need to do. No. You need to confess that, that you've settled into that and say, oh, Lord, forgive me. And I need to move from mental affirmation to practical engagement, to, to taking my faith seriously. And I suspect many of us here today, though we know the gospel, though we know that we're saved by faith, not by works, we still struggle thinking God is a performance-based father. And thinking, you know, 
God knows everything about me, and when he looks down at me, he's mostly disappointed in me. He, you know, I failed again this week, or I haven't been walking close, and he's just like, he's got me on the list of people who, who he's thinking of kicking out of the family. I'm barely making it. He's, he's probably going to kick me out this summer. Like, that is not the way God is at all. Because of Christ, God has adopted us into his family. And you might be telling yourself or heard messages that you have to perform to be accepted. That's not the way it is with God. That's what grace is. Receiving all that God has for us, even though we don't deserve it. God does know everything about us, yet he loves us completely. And if you are, are really struggling with this, about your faith and about being a performance before God, you need to hear the gospel again. Again. God has adopted you into his family and loves you deeply. And he looks with joy upon you for all that he's going to do in you and through you. And there might be some here as well who struggle with assurance of their faith. And you just don't, don't know. And to that, I often ask three questions. Does your sin concern you? Do you care about other people? Do you care about growing with God? Like you're bothered by the fact that you're not where you should be? Those are all signs of genuine faith. Genuine faith is not perfection before God. It is that desire to carry on in the journey day by day. And there might be someone here today that God has spoken to and has revealed you have a non-genuine faith. You thought, you know, as long as I just said I believe in God sometime, I'm good. No. You not only need to believe in God, you need to trust your life to him. To live totally devoted to him, to submit to him as Lord and Savior. And so maybe James has given you life-saving news today, awakening you out of a counterfeit faith and calling you to receive Christ and enter into true faith. And if that's you today, I want to talk to you after the service today. You can come and talk to me and we can pray together. But I want to invite you to just come before the Lord now and respond to what he's been saying. Maybe some need to confess, man, my faith has just become mere emotion or it's become stale intellectualism or it's become performance-based. I need to have this new picture of God, this new refreshed vision of God. And maybe some of you need assurance in your faith today, so you ask God for that. And all of us need to continue to draw near in genuine faith to our Father. And so I want to give you a moment to do that just to draw near to God and to talk to him, and then I'll lead us in prayer. So would you pray? And Father God, we live in a world that assaults our faith all the time and makes fun of it and dismisses it as harmful, irrelevant, old. 
Lord, we are under great pressure as believers, and yet you can endure the hardest things and enable us to endure the hardest things as you walk with us. And so today we come to you and want to be honest before you. I mean, we can't hide anything from you. You know it all already, but sometimes we have to admit it to ourselves. This is real. This is where I'm at with you. And we admit that, Lord, wherever we're at. And then we ask, Lord, for your help and for your power and for a clear vision of you. And we pray against the enemy's discouraging thoughts where he tries to slander your character as if you don't really love us when the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies never come to an end and they are new every morning and they were new this morning and your faithfulness is great. That's who you are. That's the God. You are the God that we serve and love. And so we need this fresh vision of you in our lives. And as we go into this summer and our routines get all messed up and it's easy to forget about you, help us to draw closer to you through the breakup of our normal routines so that when we gather together fully again in September, we are a people who have gone deeper in you through this summer. But we thank you for who you are and your call for us to be your children. Help us to embrace that more fully now and until the day you call us home or return, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.